second mile, love your enemies. Boy, this is, a, this is a, one of those messages that's much easier to preach and to live. Uh, go the second mile, love your enemies. That, that's, that's, that's a challenge, if you're honest with yourself at all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. We thank you for uh, the truth that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, really uh, kingdom ethics. We're not in the kingdom, but we're headed there as your people, and we are to live accordingly as far as um, the principles and uh, the, the moral uh, tone uh, that we see in the deeper essence of the law, even as Christ came to fulfill the law and impress upon us uh, how to live accordingly. So, Lord, I, I ask now that you would help me to teach accurately and help us to have receptive hearts to what you have to say to us. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew. Uh, the theme is Christ the King. We're in this section down here in chapters 5 through 7. The pronouncements of the King, uh, proving his judicial right to the throne as seen in the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. Just a little review leading in, segueing into our study this morning. The forerunner to the Messiah was John the Baptist, who was prophesied 700 years in advance uh, by the prophet Isaiah, as seen in Isaiah 40, verse 3. He came preparing the people to receive the Messiah by calling them to repentance. And when Jesus started his official ministry, he took the baton, in effect, uh, from John the Baptist. And he too called the people to repentance, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way you get into the kingdom is through repentance. I can tell you at the end of the day, only true repenters will be in the kingdom. If people have never repented, they won't be in the kingdom. Uh, you say, well, I thought it was by faith. Well, it is. Uh, it's a change of mind kind of faith. You see, the word repentance means to have a change of mind. Uh, it's a change of mind about sin and a change of mind about the Savior. You acknowledge where you're at as a sinful being, a human being, and you need a Savior. And that's found in Jesus Christ. So uh, two sides of the same coin of conversion. Uh, repentance. Faith. Where you have true faith, you have repentance. And where you have true repentance, you have faith. Uh, same package. Well, for those repentant, the expectation is that they will now live in keeping with king, the king's kingdom ethics as laid down in the Sermon on the Mount. How shall we then live? This is the question answered by the Sermon on the Mount. This is how kingdom citizens should then live. I mean, if we're truly repentant, uh, this is how we should live. <clears throat> now, it's spelled out in Matthew 5 in the form of what I call kingdom ethics, called to be attitudes, and also in the form of six antithesis, uh, in which Christ says, you have heard, but I say. Uh, so note eight beatitudes, six antithesis. First, the beatitudes. I'm summarizing here, acknowledge spiritual poverty, poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, godly sorrow, those who mourn, acknowledge their sin, they're broken over it, humble submission to God's reign, the, the meek, pursue godliness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, concern for others, merciful, uh, blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Uh, merciful is one of those, it's a really challenging thing that's really a God thing. Because mercy says, yeah, you're a, a, a dirty, rotten wretch and you deserve everything you got coming, but I have sympathy. I have compassion on you in that state. I care about you in that state. That's mercy. Passion for holiness, the pure in heart, they shall see God. Strive for unity, peacemakers, and stand for what is right, uh, persecuted for righteousness. And then we are in this section at the end of the chapter, uh, 6th and Tithesis. And uh, note what we have there. Uh, you, have uh, you have heart, you have heard, but I say, uh, number one, the issue of murder. And behind murder is the issue of anger, uh, adultery, divorce, oaths, uh, vengeance, and love for enemies. Uh, today we're dealing with those last two. Uh, two important things to note from Matthew 5. Number one, Christ came to fulfill the law in a deeper sense. That is making it possible for his people to live out the spirit of the law in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can never do this on our own. 
Number two, Christ plainly says that unless our righteousness exceeds the standards of the scribes and Pharisees, we will not see the kingdom. These religious leaders emphasized external compliance, but Christ emphasized an internal spiritual dynamic that results in an even higher standard of living. In saving faith, we have an imputed righteousness. That is, Christ's righteousness is put to our account. But we also have a changed heart, which results in practical righteousness in the life. And they really go together. Uh, Positional sanctification leads to practical sanctification. Well, today we consider the fifth and the sixth antithesis related to retaliation and love. Notice he says, we begin Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Indeed, this is what the Old Testament law taught. This prescription is found in uh, places like Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, etc. But Christ shows the intention was never to foster personal vengeance or retaliation. You put my tooth up, yours is going. (laughs) No. Uh, You see, an eye for an eye was called the law of retaliation. But understand, this was never to be a matter of personal retaliation. Or vindication. Rather, this was a provision under the law that was carried out in the realm of the legal courts. This becomes very important in terms of the flow of thought making and making proper application of what Christ is saying. Personal vengeance was never the intent. You say, well, I've got a law here that says I can do you just as you did me. Uh, no. Uh, note uh, this quote uh, from... Moody Bible Commentary, Deuteronomy 19.18 indicates that the law of the tooth, uh, Latin lex uh, talonos, uh, the law of the tooth was a guideline for the civil authorities and did not approve private retribution. That's a very important thing to realize here. Jesus now goes on to show that for kingdom citizens, there is to be no place for retaliation or being vindictive. We are to live above this. In verses 39 through 42, Jesus gives four illustrations that illustrate this uh, principle. Now, we've already noted that in this sermon, uh, there are places where Christ, to make a point, seems to use hyperbole, an, an exaggerated statement to make a point. We saw this, for example, in verses 29 and 30, where Christ says, If your right eye offends you, then pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, almost no one thinks we should take this literally. I mean, we don't have knives in the office where the elders do their counseling. (laughs) We we don't do that. And if if we did, I'm thinking we would, if if I was preaching that, I'm hoping everyone would leave. Uh, You know, that's, that's that's just beyond the pale. So we take it that Christ was speaking in exaggerated terms to make his point strong. He's making a point. Namely, that drastic action is required. And we see this uh, hyperbolic emphasis in these verses here, too, addressing retaliation. And we will note it as we go through here. Verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But Jesus says, I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Well, you know, we get kind of funny sometimes with the old guy, you know, it's like somebody slapped him on the face and turned the other cheek and slapped him on the side, and then he just decked the guy. He said, well, the Lord told me to turn the other cheek, but he didn't say what to do after that. <laughs> well, an evil person is one who has done you wrong. Right? Done you wrong. And, and what is the human tendency when somebody does you wrong? Payback. To retaliate. Payback. Right? To retaliate. A slap on the right cheek in the Jewish culture was considered a major insult. Injuring your pride pretty much more than anything else. And Jewish law, they actually had a law that demanded a stiff fine for such an injurious insult. Well, instead of retaliating, Christ says, turn the other cheek. Again, understand the spirit in which Christ is speaking. In the context, the flow of thought continues from verse 38. 
In a situation where the courts should handle things, you don't become a vigilante and try to mete out justice on a personal, vengeful basis. Instead of doing that, you just take it. You just take it. There's a lot of things in life where where we should just, just take it. Worldly wisdom says this, if you don't hit me, I won't hit you. But if you do hit me, I'll hit you back twice as hard. How's that? Seems like a little bit of worldly wisdom going on there, right? I mean, I can understand that from a worldly standpoint. You know what Christ says? Don't hit back. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. Say, I'm going to settle the score. Christ says, no, that's not how you as kingdom citizens should live. Now, this is not to say there's no place for the civil authorities to deal with abuse. There is, just as there was under the law in the Old Testament. The issue here that we're dealing with and that Christ is dealing with is personal retaliation. There's no place for personal revenge in kingdom ethics. But I would argue there is a place to call the authorities when abuse is happening. I mean, if somebody's trying to knock your teeth out, you should call the police. And I also think there's a place for self-defense and a place to be wise proactively in protecting yourself and your family. Uh, ESV study Bible. Jesus' focus here is on individual conduct as indicated by the contrast with Matthew 5, 38, which shows he is prohibiting the universal human tendency to seek personal revenge. I don't want to seek personal revenge. And, uh, you know, the New Testament is very consistent here. Paul in Romans twelve nineteen says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. But rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will repay. It's his position to do so, not ours. So when someone abusively wrongs you, the thing to do is give it over to God and let him take care of it. That's his place. And he'll do a lot better job than you or I ever would. Vengeance belongs to God. Don't play God. Don't play God here. Give it to him. It belongs to him to repay. Now, it's important to realize that uh, personal retaliation is sin. It's wrong. It's not in keeping with kingdom living. That's the principle. And you know, we're all tempted to do that when somebody does us wrong. (laughs) Just in us. We just feel like responding. No, Christ says, that's not the way I want you to live. Verse 40, if someone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. For whatever reason, this person wants to sue you. And presumably, uh, in an unethical way. That's the flow of the thought here. Uh, The most natural thing is to fight back. But Christ says not to retaliate, but instead to be gracious. Now, again, every situation has to be weighed in view of the whole counsel of God. But Jesus is here dealing with the issue of retaliation and is emphasizing we are to have a completely different spirit. Really, the exact opposite spirit. Instead of retaliating, we are to be extra gracious. Now, that takes some real, that takes a a spirit-filled person to respond that way. Let's talk about this. The tunic was the inner garment, while the cloak was the outer coat-like coat-like garment, and the law forbade taking away the cloak, for it provided warmth in the night and served as a type of blanket. Now, most do not feel that Jesus was saying, offer everything and just go home in your loincloth. Most do not think he was saying that. But rather, again, by way of hyperbole, was making the point that we should go to extremes in being gracious versus being vindictive when someone is seeking to legally take advantage of us. He is dealing with our attitude. And that should indicate uh, that material things are not the most important things to us. Rather, gracious, godlike character is the main thing. Verse 41, third illustration. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Here, most commentators believe that Christ was referring to the Roman government's practice of military personnel having the authority to commandeer civilians... To help them carry their supplies. As such, they had the authority to press both men and beasts into compulsory service 
when the interests of the government required it. An example of this would be when the Roman soldiers pressed Simon the Cyrenian into service, into the service of carrying the cross of Christ. Remember this? In Luke 23, it says, Now as they led him away, talking about Christ, and they're leading him to the, the place of the crucifixion, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. This guy's just, just showing up. He's been out in the country, and he's coming into town. Hey, we want you to help us over here. Get over here. I got my rights. I'm a Roman citizen. No way am I going to help you guys. No, 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 no. He knew better. <laughs> Not in Rome. Uh, so they, he was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. That's, they had the right to do that under Roman law. John Philip says, The Jews greatly resented this kind of compulsory service. But the Lord taught that it is our duty to help those who rule over us, to do so cheerfully, and to go beyond the call of duty. How about that? If the government compels us to do something we don't like, which I might qualify as not a moral issue, obviously it's morally wrong, we're not going to do that, we accept the punishment, but... but uh, if they ask us to do something we don't like, but, but it's not a moral issue, what then should our attitude be? Well, you know, we as American Christians, with our emphasis on independence and freedom, tend to struggle with this, I think, a little bit. Loud amens coming from the whole section. You know, we don't like being told what to do by the government, do we? We're Americans. Who is the government to tell me what to do? I got my freedoms, all of them. Yeah, we say, after all, the government's here to serve us, we the people. It's not the other way around, right? Imagine if Simon would have said that. They might have put him on that cross. Yeah, only once. That's right. As one commentator put it, this illustration is implicitly anti-zealot. We are not to be revolutionaries who fight against the government at every step and resist their leadership. But you say, but our government is different. Really? Have you studied Roman government? It really ruled with an iron fist. You didn't mess with Rome or they might put you on a Roman cross. We are to be good citizens with a spirit of being willing to be helpful in the matter of civic duties. Even being willing to go the extra mile. How's that for an attitude? All the way through here, Christ is dealing with our attitude, you see. We should not be thinking of self, me first, but rather seeking the other's highest good. We should not seek retaliation, but we should be putting people over possessions. We should be willing to give of ourselves when pressed into service by the governing authorities. This is consistent with a kingdom attitude, kingdom ethics. Verse 42, it gets even tougher. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Anybody need a loan this morning? I'm hoping one of the elders is willing to practice what I preach. <laughs> well, how should we understand this? Uh, should we just be a soft touch that indiscriminately gives to everyone who wants something? Look at what he says. Give to him who asks you. <laughs> And you put me in the office with the phone. People are calling me all the time. Why do you do this to me? i got to give to every one of them. <laughs> Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Uh, you know, Paul said, if anyone should not work, neither shall he eat. How's that? He didn't say, well, feed him. Feed him anyway. He's not willing to work. Lazy bum. But feed him anyway because Jesus said, give to him who asks you. No, no. We want to consider the whole counsel of God in context. Most commentators agree that this uh, presumes the person asking for money or, or wanting to borrow has a legitimate need. You know that fact, and you're in a position to help him. We must also take into account the many proverbs in, in the book of wisdom that counsel against indiscriminate lending or being surety for someone. Jesus was not contradicting these wisdom principles. We're not called to be naive or undiscerning. I often say that in Bible times, they had a great advantage over us in that they didn't have phones, and they certainly didn't have cell phones. 
You see, anyone can get on a phone. I know this well. I know this day in and day out as a way of life. Anyone can get on a phone and just call, claiming anything, and please, would you give me money? And, and, you know, that puts me in an interesting position. How am I supposed to even know if this is true at all? I mean, a lot of these people are kind of professional panhandlers. I mean, this is what they do. This is their job. And uh, so if you consider this, what Christ is saying, with no textual uh, or contextual uh, framework, I guess you just have to give to everybody all the time. And I could spend all of my time going down all kinds of rabbit trails. I think uh, the above situation here that Christ is describing in context assumes that you have some real knowledge about the situation. It's genuine and you're in a position to help. John MacArthur says the implication is that the person who asks has a genuine need. We are not required to respond to every foolish, selfish request made of us. Sometimes to give a person what he wants but does not need is a disservice doing him more harm than good. But there's also one other contextual consideration that I want to bring before you. Holman Christian Standard Bible a study Bible says this, and I think this is the right direction to go. Since this entire paragraph is devoted to Jesus' teaching against retaliation, this verse probably prohibits disciples from seeking vengeance against opponents by refusing to help them in time of need. That, to me, fits the flow of the context here. And I think that in rightly dividing the word, we always want to consider the context that we're looking at. It considers the uh, entire context of the whole Word of God as well as the immediate context. And note the spirit here uh, as far as, you know, retaliation. Uh, here back in the book of Exodus 23, if, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. You say, well, it's my enemy. Sorry, dude. Bad day for you. You just lost a donkey, dude. You see him? I saw him go over the cliff. I could have <laughs> done something, but I didn't. No, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. The sense is that instead of retaliation, we should respond with a helping hand. And the overall context in Matthew 5 here, I think, suggests this is in response uh, to someone you might feel like saying, okay, you can just suffer because of what you've done to me. Again, our attitude should be gracious in spite of what they may have done to us in the past. The whole surrounding context is emphasizing that we as kingdom citizens should not be a vindictive people. Instead of retaliating, we just take it. Instead of retaliating, we go the extra mile. Instead of retaliating, we seek to be helpful. This is a powerful testimony. And this is the the flow of thought that we have presented by Christ in terms of kingdom ethics. Well, this last week I had part in a memorial service, uh, that of Kenda High, who is the mother-in-law of my, uh, my son-in-law, Nate. And I knew her pretty well, a really godly, gracious woman. And one of the things they shared at the service, uh, somebody shared uh, this. It was remembered that she would often set aside her, her own wishes aside, saying it didn't really matter, uh, to allow others to have their way. And it was remembered that she was not one to hold a grudge, being very forgiving and willing to help no matter what. Well, that's the kind of spirit that Christ is talking about here. This is what is to define his people. It's so human to lash out, to be vindictive, to retaliate, to seek some form of vengeance, and to demand justice. Right? I mean, that's, uh, and, and I, boy, I could feel that. Things, when injustice is done, I feel the anger burning up in me. Christ is saying, watch out. Don't, don't push your own rights too far here. This is the type of attitude Christ is calling for. Just to take it and, and go on wishing for and seeking the best for those who mistreat you is really the stuff of kingdom living. That's gracious living, supernatural living, made possible only by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But this is our calling as kingdom people. I'm telling you, it really bothers me that God's people are so off track today. They've got the world's ethics confused with Bible ethics, and they don't seem to know the difference. They don't know anything about kingdom ethics like Christ is teaching here. And a lot of God's people are even kind of sucked into that whole frame of thinking, whole frame of mind. This week I read an article in a magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs. It was about a man from Nigeria uh, named Ibrahim. And uh, radical Muslims attacked his village. And in the process, they injured him, causing him to lose his eyesight. And he says, quote, I was not born again before the attack came, and I lost my sight. I gave my life to Christ after the attack happened. And since then, I have not looked back, he says. Well, after a month in the hospital, uh, yeah, I know, pun pun not intended. No pun intended. I thought that too. Well, after a month in the hospital, he went to a church and heard a sermon on forgiveness. He had felt vengeful after the attack, and I imagine you would. I mean, a lot of people in the village were killed. In fact, he was trying to help two uh, children who were in the path here, uh, and he went into a home to help them, and that's when they, they bludgeoned him in the head and almost killed him, and it caused him to lose his eyesight. And so he says, I, he felt vengeful after the attack, but upon hearing the sermon, he had a change of heart. He said, quote, the message really gave me, another pun, insight. <laughs> I saw that the best thing was uh, for me to forgive, so I forgave. Wow, that's a change. That's, a cha- that's not normal. That's not normal. Vindictive is normal. Vindictive is according to the flesh. Forgiving? Now that's a whole nother thing. That's kingdom living. Now, uh, let's talk about this for just a moment here. As those who have been forgiven, we are to be a forgiving people. We've been forgiven, right? How, how much we've been forgiven? Well, just everything. I mean, we stand before God in robes of white. The righteousness of Christ applied to us. Wow. We are not to let an attitude of vengeance control us. Our entire outlook is now to be different. We are kingdom people and God controls our destiny. We're to let God take care of all things related to vengeance. That's God's territory. Now, admittedly, as I say, it's relatively easy to preach this. It's not so easy to live it out. And I wish I'd say, boy, I'm the perfect example. Just follow me. I I never have a vindictive attitude. Uh, I I still got a little flesh in me sometimes. Sometimes things make me mad, and I do want to strike back. Got to humble down. I tell myself that a lot. Humble down. Humble down. You know, people have a knack of, of doing really hurtful and hateful things that can easily get to us, right? Don't point fingers. This is not the time for it. But it does happen. Even in the body of Christ. Love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, we we do things. And we need God's help to be what we ought to be. When we get slapped, sued, abused, or used, what should our response be? Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. Be gracious. And to respond in grace thinks of the other person's highest good, which is what God's love is all about. So not retaliating segues beautifully into Christ's next emphasis. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now it is true that Leviticus 19.18 specifically says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But nowhere did the law command, hate your enemy. The Jews thought it was implied that Israel's enemies were God's enemies, and therefore they should be hated. Uh, They got this from places like Psalm 139, where David says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Boy, you read that from David, you know, this great leader in Israel, you think, well, boy, yeah. Love your neighbors, hate your enemies, who happen to be, you know, God's enemies too. That's the kind of reasoning they had. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The Pharisees thus implied that their hatred was God's means of judging their enemies. But Jesus stated that Israel should demonstrate God's love even to her enemies, a practice not even commanded in the Old Testament. Did you catch that? 
Loving your enemies, a practice not even commanded in the Old Testament. So he says, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I don't know about you, but I'm still working on this one. You say, well, I'm I'm there. You know, I just love my enemies all the time. Good, good. That's great. You're doing it. Well, Christ acknowledges here that we will have enemies. And who are they? Well, they are the people who curse you, hate you, spitefully use you and persecute you. Lovely bunch of people, for sure. This may be the hardest commandment given in the Bible. Is there a harder one? Maybe love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. But in terms of human relationships, wow. This is a a high standard. Like I, I say, it's not even found in the Old Testament. This is radical stuff. This is higher standard stuff. Now, we can easily, more easily understand the command to love our brother, right? Uh, love your brother. But our enemy, our enemy, this is radical stuff if we really take it seriously. Who loves our enemies? Now, now thankfully, I don't think we're talking emotionally. <laughs> Emotions, you know, they'll take you who knows where. The Greek word for love in the command, love your enemies, is the word agape. This is the intense word for love. It's not based on emotions, which is a good thing, as I say, because uh, sometimes it's very difficult to get emotions to get in line, to feel lovey when people are abusing you. I don't think that's what he's saying. Agape love, you see, is based on the will. Whatever, your feelings might not be there. But you need to, you need to uh, do it anyway. It chooses to love and it seeks the other person's highest good in spite of their actions. This is God's kind of love. This doesn't go by feelings. That's what the whole world's about, feely stuff. I don't love you anymore. I don't feel it. Who cares what you feel? Loving your enemies responds with blessing them when they curse you. Try this the next time it happens. It's not easy to do spouting at you and saying all kinds of nasty things. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind too. That's what we feel like doing. When someone's cursing you, the most natural thing in the world is to want to curse back. But remember the example of Jesus as his enemies were crucifying him and reviling him on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, the first martyr of the church as he was dying, said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 9, says, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called, this is your calling. What? To do what? Return blessing for cursing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. ESV Study Bible says, these blessings are intended to lead unbelievers to repentance. Of course, and you know, the Bible says the goodness of God leads to repentance. Of course, there is a sense in which God hates those who are resolutely and impenitently wicked. There are those verses. But God's blessing of common grace constitute his primary providential action toward mankind in the here and now. So what should we do, according to Jesus? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them. Pray for them. When I was a brand new Christian, I worked uh, with a close friend uh, who did not appreciate my conversion. He liked the old Dwight, which I don't think anybody here would really like too much. But he did. He liked partying with me. Uh, He didn't like the new Dwight. And when I got saved, he told me that I had messed in my own nest. I sanitized the language. And he made it clear that he wanted nothing to do with me. When I would come into the shop in the morning, I'd say, good morning. And you know what he'd do every morning? (laughs) Just turn his head away from me. Every morning. This went on day after day for a long time. 
And it so happened in the early days of my salvation. You know, my mother made me memorize scripture in order to get my allowance. And so I just, after I really got saved, I thought, well, I guess that's what Christians should do, memorize scripture. So I started memorizing three verses a day. And one of the verses that I memorized was Matthew 5.44. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So when he would do this, I would pray for him. That's what the verse tells me to do. I'd pray for him. Try to be gracious. He wasn't having any of it. One day, however, when he was in a situation where he needed someone to help him, and being desperate, there was nobody else that really was around to be able to help him, he came to me, and he asked me if I'd help him. Well, I promptly told him that because he'd been treating me so badly, I would never help him, and that those abused God's servant in this way are going straight to hell. No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Thankfully, by the grace of God, I did not do that. Of course not. I said, I would be glad to help you. And it broke the ice. His attitude towards me was different after that. Never friendly like we were before, but but civil. He now treated me in a civil manner. You know, the Bible says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus said to respond in this way. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the the unjust. You know what? God is good to everybody. God's kind to everybody out here. The sense here is not that you may become sons, but that you may reflect that you are indeed the sons of your father in heaven. Verse 48 shows that Christ is addressing those who already have God as their father. So you don't, we don't do anything to become sons of our Father. It's, it's by grace through faith that we're saved. And then as we are children of God, it is to reflect in our lives. Those that truly know God as their Father should show a moral resemblance to Him. God loves unconditionally, and so should we. This is God-like, and it is to be indicative of His children. God causing the sun to rise on those who are evil as well as those who are good and on him sending rain on the just and the unjust is what theologians often refer to as common grace. Common grace. The world is being graced by God all the time. God loves everyone. He's gracious to all. God so loved the world, the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were... Still sinners, Christ died for. Aren't you glad he didn't say, you guys get your act together and then I'll die for you. Oh, no, 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 no. When we were enemies, the Bible says, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You talk about the ultimate example of loving your enemies. It's found in Jesus Christ on the cross. We all started there. We were all his enemies and he loved us to death. God loves the unlovely, such as me. Such as you. He loves sinners and he wants to save them. I wonder, you know, we got this this reputation out here in the world. Of course, they slander us all the time too. That's true. But uh, I, I wonder if they ever really feel that we love them. That God loves them. We, we are to reflect this. He says, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? We should not expect any reward for loving those who love us. Even worldly sinners do this. It's easy to love those who love you. That's no big deal. Jesus said even the tax collectors do this. And who loves tax collectors, by the way? Well, other tax collectors. (laughs) Tax collectors even uh, love one another. And you understand that tax collectors back then, as well as today, were considered to be the scum of the earth. I mean, the Jews especially hated them. You see, tax collectors in the context that Jesus is addressing, that is the Jewish people, they were Jews who were hired by the Romans to collect taxes in the Jewish community. They were considered traitors to the Jewish nation. And on top of that, they tended to be dishonest in charging absorbent fees, absorbent rates, skimming off the top before Rome got their share. 
By the way, before his conversion, this was the occupation of Matthew, who happens to be the human author of this book. So he could really relate to this statement. Now, there's nothing commendable about loving those who love you. Even the low-down tax collectors live on this level. But to love your enemies? Now, that's something. That's godlike. That's commendable. This is reward worthy. Verse 47. And if you greet your brethren only. Note the word only here. What do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? I mean, if you're friendly only to those who are in your little friendship group, <laughs> think you're really serving God in a big way? Oh, man. Okay. You're on the same level as the tax collectors. They do this. There's nothing commendable about this. Even the most worldly of people function on this level. God sets a much higher standard for his people. Yes, of course we are to love one another. Yes, of course we are to be friendly to one another and greet one another. But beyond that, we are to be loving even towards our enemies. You know those people that can't stand us and we really don't like them. Those that seek to abuse us. Evil for good. That's devil-like. Good for good, evil for evil. That's man-like. But good for evil, that's God-like. That's God-like. This is where Jesus wants to move us. This is in keeping with kingdom ethics. Jesus calls his kingdom people to be God-like. Returning good for evil. When that happens... Now you're talking reward. Now you're talking about a testimony that is godlike. That is powerful living that is completely contrary to what the flesh or, or normal human experience is all about. Verse 48. Therefore, in light of what he has just said, you should be perfect. Just as your father in heaven is perfect. The therefore here follows this section on loving your enemies. However, some think it is really a, a summary statement of all the antithesis statements, which are essentially all qualified by God's kind of love. John MacArthur says, The sum of all that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, the sum of all that he teaches in Scripture, is in those words. This is a really powerful statement. Be perfect, just as your Father in heaven. This is the heart of the whole emphasis Christ is making in the entire Sermon on the Mount. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees emphasize external legalistic outward conformity to the law. With loopholes, of course. But in contrast, the righteousness Jesus emphasized was about an inward character of godlikeness. That then works its way out into life in keeping with the moral intent of the law. The contrast is between an external emphasis and an internal emphasis. For Jesus' being comes before doing. And doing is based on being. The great issue in life is not mere rules, but relationship with God. That puts him on display. It's all about God-likeness. Being like God, or what the Bible elsewhere calls godliness. Be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is the climactic emphasis in the ministry of Jesus. This is what it's all about in terms of kingdom righteousness and kingdom living. Godlikeness. However, it is undeniable that this emphasis on being like God follows in context here on the climactic emphasis of God's unconditional love as seen in loving your enemies. Again, the Holman Christian Study Bible says, the close connection between this verse and Jesus' teaching about love in verses 43 through 47 suggests that unconditional love is the most crucial expression of God's character in the life of his followers. Truly, the greatest demonstration of love is seen in loving our enemies as God 
loves his enemies. Which, by the way, is most of the world most of the time. I mean, they're all here, you know, snubbing their noses at God, shaking their fist at God. And he's continuing to, to bring out a wonderful sunshine on them today. Now, many commentators think that Matthew 5.48 is essentially a variant, if you will, of Leviticus 19.2 or perhaps Deuteronomy 18.13 in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you should be holy. Insert the word perfect here. You should be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You be holy. Why? Because God, your God is holy. Be like your God. Deuteronomy 18, 13, you should be blameless before the Lord your God. You should be perfect. The word perfect denotes that which is complete or mature. God is the standard of perfection. With the emphasis in the immediate context being on the standard of love. We are to love like God loves. We are to love our enemies like he loves them. So when it says, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect, the command is to be God-like in our character. This is the goal. We'll never attain it completely in this life, but this is always the goal. In Philippians, Paul's testimony, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of Of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. William MacDonald says, the previous verses explain that to be perfect means to love those who hate us, to pray for those who persecute us, and to show kindness to both friend and foe. Perfection here is that spiritual maturity which enables a Christian to imitate God in dispensing blessing to everybody without partiality. The Jewish spiritual leaders promoted the idea that keeping the legal code of the law made one holy. But Jesus taught external conformity is not enough. He calls his people to be godlike, involving internal character that then works its way out in the life. Ed Glasscock says, by keeping Christ's words, one was to be complete as God himself is complete in the spirit of the law. Stanley Two Saints says, the aim of the disciples' lives is the molding of their lives after the person of their heavenly father. This is the climax to the standard of the Old Testament concept of righteousness. And indeed it is. God's people, changed by repentance, are now to live out righteous lives that look like this. <clears throat> what, have, what have we see emphasized? Controlled anger, sexual purity, covenant faithfulness, truth tellers, not retaliatory, love your enemies. This is godlike. This is godlike. As I say, in summary, the Jews emphasized the external keeping of the law. Legalistic conformity was their emphasis. Well, that's one level of so-called righteousness. But Jesus went deeper, emphasizing the very character of God is to be seen in our lives. Thus, the very righteousness of God is to be lived out in the lives of his kingdom people. This is kingdom living in keeping with kingdom ethics. You youngins will not have heard of this lady before, probably. But her name was Madeline Murray O'Hare. She lived in the 1900s, uh, died in 1995, and she was at that time, back in the 1900s, called uh, the most hated woman in America. I don't think that'd be true today, but it was true back then. In 1963, she founded American Atheist and served as its president until 1986. And it was because of her lawsuit, you see, that it was mandated that prayer be removed from all public schools in America. After her death, they discovered her diaries in which she had handwritten notes. And it revealed her loneliness and her cries of despair. One of the things she said over and over again in her diaries, Somebody, somewhere, love me. Written six times. Sometimes in a box set apart from the rest of the text. Somebody, somewhere, love me. 
You know what? Everybody needs love. And the greatest thing in all the world is the love of God put on display perfectly in the life, death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as his people, as his people, this too is our calling. Who did Jesus love to death? His enemies. We too are to put the love of God on display before a watching and unworthy world. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Gloria Melville shares this story. At my church, a woman who had often snubbed me went out of her way to give me a big hug before the church service. I was surprised and wondered what in the world initiated her change of heart. I got my answer at the end of the service. The pastor said, quote, Your assignment for next week is the same as last week. I want you to go out there and love somebody you just can't stand. (laughs) Well, that is our standing assignment. Don't retaliate. Go the second mile. Love your enemies. In other words, put God's love on display. Jesus said, be perfect in this way, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I love that old song, I would be like Jesus. A couple of refrains goes like this. Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus. That in heaven he may greet me, I would be like Jesus. That his words well done may greet me, I would be like Jesus. Put God on display. This is our ongoing assignment. The same as last week and the week before that. Going all the way back to Jesus saying, be perfect. In character. Be God-like in your character. Be like your Father in heaven. This is your calling. This is my calling. This is our ongoing assignment. You see, it's really not about us. That's what Jesus is emphasizing all the way through here. Retaliation is about me. Jesus said, it's not about you. It's about him. It's about him. Be like him. It's all about him. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.